it saddens me when an author will write a book and as soon as they launch it, they're on to the next one. Or they don't even give it the chance to spread. What? We maybe know a hundred people, a thousand people max personally, and the book might reach 2,500 people, 10,000 people, hundred thousand, maybe a million people, but there's billions of people on the planet. You know what I mean? So it's like, I, I try to treat my books as if they're still new. That was today's guest, Richie Norton. He's an incredible entrepreneur that I first got an invite and connection from. Uh, Pat Flynn, my mentor that Steve and I have had for many years. And he, he is the author of some incredible books with some great wisdom. And you really should listen in because this could change your book's trajectory. Welcome to the Authors Who Lead podcast. This podcast is dedicated to you, people who want to be inspired by authors, leaders, and the messages they share. This is such an important podcast to us because we help uncover what goes on behind the scenes when authors are writing their book. We talk about the process. We talk about where they get big ideas. And you can listen in on those conversations. We can't wait for you to join us. So let's get started. Now, here's your host, Azul Tarones. Hey, everyone. Azul Tarones here with another episode of Authors Who Lead. I'm so thrilled to have a dear friend and fellow lover of the way that time can give you back so much more than you possibly manage. That's Richie Norton. He's the award-winning best-selling author of a book I first loved when we had him on the show before, which is The Power of Starting Something Stupid. It's been translated into 10 different languages. Pretty awesome. Maybe more since, since then I wrote this note. And he also wrote a book called Resumes Are Dead and What to Do About It. And in 2019, which is a while ago, he was named one of the world's top 100 business coaches by Dr. Marshall Goldsmith. He's an international speaker, including a TEDx, Google Startup Grind, and a serial entrepreneur. And his new book, Anti-Time Management, Reclaim Your Time and Revolutionize Your Results with the Power of Time Tipping is what we'll talk about today. Richie, welcome. So you are the best. I am I'm so excited. We are going to have so much fun. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is going to be so good. Yeah. You know what's great about this is this book is mainly this book. This podcast is mainly dedicated to authors, leaders who are trying to write their book or get excited about continuing to promote their book. But if you're listening and you're thinking about growing something at all, I always love when Richie's here because he thinks in such a different way that he'll open your mind to recalibrate what you thought you knew and take a simple path forward. And I, that's what I love about your books. It's not about getting complicated. It's about simplifying and simplifying sometimes takes cleaning out the closet. And uh, there's a lot of great principles in your book that really struck me. And I want to start with the way the book was written. I know that this may not have been exactly the way you were planning to do it, but the book has so many nuggets that it could be called multiple things. So I want to start here because anti-time management is a really interesting concept. And the power of time tipping was also another interesting concept, very similar in what they're talking about. Tell us what the struggle might've been with getting a title for a book like this, because it in holds so many different potential topics. I struggle with the title. I went back and forth because I had like convictions, you know, this is the way it should be. This is what the title should be. This is what, you know, the subtitle should be. And I, it was going to be called time tipping that, that was it. And people that I shared it with, they're like, yeah, that is, you know, all the good things there's, you know, it's hard to get a good title. That title is going to, it's one of those titles you can't really get because it's so abstract, but also it's so powerful. What does it mean? And you can relate it in your mind to all the other different things that it could mean. So I was like all about this is going to be like such a good title. And in fact, I believe I pitched it to my publisher with that title. And then it, the anti-time management was the, 
kind of the they were interweaved this idea of time tipping and anti-time management right between a framework and a methodology and all these things and we came to anti-time management it really it hurt my soul in a lot of ways no it's got to be time tipping but anti-time management is so bold yeah. that it, it almost scares people in a in a, not based on the reactions people are coming back and like what and then they come up with on their own what they think it means which is intriguing right. to me and so yeah. at, at the end of the day whether i chose time tipping or anti-time management will it make or break the book who knows maybe yeah yeah but we settled on after getting a lot of feedback from people and seeing their reactions so yeah i tested it yeah you know and that's the great point is testing a title is really important because i got really attached to my early book title and no one really knows what it meant it's that's the core of the problem i get into it and then i really have a vision for it but explaining it to people before they buy it it's harder than giving a book that gives them what they want. And then you explain it inside the book. So I felt, I, I totally understand this time tipping to me is what it feels like it means something to me. So I, for me, that's why I locked onto. That's why I'm glad you shared it. I had Carol Klein on here. She was a New York times bestselling author of several books, but one of them was a series for the chicken soup for the soul. So she worked really closely with Jack Kenfield and she wrote, co-wrote a book called conscious luck with Gay Hendricks. And she was on the show. We we're talking about the book. And I talked to her afterwards. After the interview, we chatted again and to get some marketing advice from me and some feedback about her book. What I asked her was, I told her the title of my book. Hey, so here's my book title. And, she's, eh. and Miles like crushed. Oh, you, you just meh, my book. But she says, painful. it's painful, right? <laughs> painful. It just wasn't intriguing enough yeah. because it was the name of, I named it the same title of the TEDx talk, which did really well. She goes, yeah, but that's a TEDx talk. A book has to be more substantial, more either be more clear or more curiosity here. So she challenged me and she asked me a few questions and then I spoke some words and she said, that's it. What you said is it. And she said, rather than call it what makes a good teacher great, which is boring. One of the stories I talk about is a great teacher eats apples. And she goes, that's more intriguing already because I want to know why a great teacher eats apples. What does that really mean? And I was like, okay, I can work with this. So getting a title right, if you're listening, is not easy. It's actually one of the hardest parts of a book. Sometimes people design a book around the title. Sometimes the title comes. But let's talk about the meat of this book. So in anti-time management, I said I noticed a lot of the way in which over the last several years, you were dripping out content from this book in different ways about this whole principle around time tipping, around how to focus your attention as opposed to do what traditional people do. Can you Tell us where the beginning started. Like sometimes there's a seed where these books start. Where was I, it? I will, I will, I will, I will. And as a segue, you'll notice on the, I know if they're listeners, they can't see it, but you'll notice with the subtitle, I wrote the power of time tipping on there. So it was a subtle way to have both titles on there. Yeah, I saw that. I thought <laughs> it was great. Had, and I had it designed that way. You can almost look at it and go, which one is the title, even though one's smaller or one's bigger. But the reason I did that leads into answering your question here. When I wrote my last book, the power of starting something stupid. And I just, you know, I guess I can be whatever. We can all be whatever. We can change the way we write. We can write whatever we want. But I like, I believe in my books and my message so much that I'm not writing a book every year, every two years. That doesn't mean I won't in the future. <laughs> I might. <laughs> I'm just saying it saddens me when an author will write a book and as soon as they launch it, they're on to the next one. Or they don't even give it the chance to spread. What? 
we maybe know a hundred people, a thousand people max personally. And the book might reach 2,500 people, 10,000 people, hundred thousand, maybe a million people, but there's billions of people on the planet. You know what I mean? So it's like, I, I try to treat my books as if they're still new to yeah. the reader that's reading it for the first time. So when I wrote The Power of Starting Something Stupid, this is the story here. I became a stupid guy, right? You Google stupid Richie <laughs> and I'm everywhere. Like I'm the stupidest <laughs> guy. It's okay. <laughs> stupid is the new smart, right? That's the whole thing. And people would come to me with their stupid ideas. Cause I did, I wrote the book. I didn't think way back then. I didn't think too much about the business model behind it. I just write a book, get it out there. Got to spread the word. You know, this is the way. And I wasn't expecting so many people to reach out. I was happy they did, but that got me into the whole coaching, consulting, online courses, and then creating all these different companies to support these people with physical products and digital products, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I learned was people would say they wanted something, but they didn't. Mm. They wanted their stupid idea was a creation of theirs in their head because they wanted what they thought they would get after that thing was successful. So an entrepreneur will start a business to get their freedom back only to find out they lost all their freedom to the business. And I thought that was ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And I learned that if I just asked some simple questions, we could find out what was that thing that you really want right? and bake that thing in from the start. In essence, in anti-time management, stop timing your values and start valuing your time. Yeah. Value your time. Don't time your values. And people go, you can't scale a business that way. Not true. In fact, the biggest bottleneck to any business is yourself. Yeah. By thinking this way and baking in the sugar from the start, you can create a business that let's say the sugar is your time, your freedom, your ability to travel. You actually create systems that allow you the time yeah. to do the things you want to do from the start, not at the end. And by the way, how often do we take 10 steps? And on the 11th step, we reach our goal. It rarely happens. And so there's endless time management loop where people will never achieve what they wanted. And they endlessly are walking towards things they think are going to get them to where they want but it was never true and it was never going to get them there. That's yeah. what this book's about. So that, that's why I, that's that. so great. I, I, I could get deeper into it. I was even talking to a venture capitalist guy the other day. And I'm like, look, man, you don't ask your people the right questions when you're trying to fund them. He's like, what do you mean? Ask them what they want to do after this business is successful. And he laughs. No, they're not starting this thing to change the world. They say that they're doing it because once they have an exit, they want to do this thing. Ask them that. Then they'll stay and then it'll be more successful. And he's, he didn't go, whoa, that's mind blowing. He was like, he laughed because he knew it was true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> that's that. That's the quote in the book. You, I think you made reference to a couple of times, which is, "If you want a better answer, ask better questions." And I yeah. think that's really important. And you gave some great examples of people that thought, "I can do this in X amount of time. It'll take me five years or whatever. I want to get freedom someday when someday comes." And you know, trying to be present in this moment, the life you want someday, is the only way to have the life you want someday. There is no other way through it. The way your book describes is that you have to live towards the thing that's so deep. And we've used, because of your messaging and the great people we've, Steve and I follow, when we build, we're building authors who lead, we're like, we were nomads. So that's when we hung out with you in London with you and your lovely wife, there you go. we were living out of a suitcase. 
what are we doing? We are publishing books, coaching programs, where from our phone, from our laptop, wherever we were. And the world kind of shut down a little bit, right? We kind of recalibrated, got more settled, but the principle stayed the same in that we only mm-hmm. take client work Tuesday through Thursday. Why? Because that's the life we want. I want a four day weekend for the rest of my life. I like working, but I also like to travel. So I want to build it in when I'm on the road. I don't feel stress that I have to do something. I want to feel joy and happiness, but it took me a long time following people like you to kind of give me my mindset. If that's the life you want someday, have it now, but think about it differently. So tell me what, when you're coming to contact with somebody who seems like they're stuck with the opposite ideas of time and value, how do you help switch their mind quickly? I was going to, the thought that first came was like, it's not hard, but that's not always true because it, it, it can be hard. And the goal isn't necessarily to change someone's mind. It's really just to ask them a secondary question. What's the job of your goal? Because people think goals are ends, but goals are means to an end. Right. Goals. I know I'm saying things that people don't say, and I get it. I get it. But let's think Olympians, they go for the gold medal. Do they do it for the gold medal or do they do it for their country and for their family? See, when you realize that, you realize you could do something for your country and your family, whether it's a gold medal or not. There's actually a million things you could do. Millions of things you could do. So once you realize and stop thinking that methods are ends, that means are ends, if you stop thinking that a goal is an end, if you stop thinking that a strength is an end, if you stop thinking this is the one that hurts people the most, if you stop thinking that a freaking habit is an end, (laughs) <laughs> okay. We're talking the same language right now. Like we're like obsessed with habits. You're like to lead me where <laughs> this Richie, this is exactly my contention around productivity. Yeah. I was like, you want to be more productive. Why? What's the, what? So now you're more productive. Now what? that's the thing is it's so easy to think that productivity will help you get the thing you want. When in fact it is almost easier to be productive than it is to no, just be. No, ironically, productivity is generally counterproductive. Yeah. To to the actual essence of what you're trying to accomplish. Now, I, let me let me tell you the stories about why I came to this personally. But before I do that, let me tell you what happened after all my little personal things that have happened in life that led me to think this way. But when I started getting into the research, so it was crazy. I didn't know these things. They didn't. I have an MBA. Nobody taught me this stuff. They taught me traditional time management. I like. I'm a Six Sigma person. I do Lean Six Sigma. I like, I know the theory of constraints. Like I'm hardcore embedded in how to make a, you know, a manufacturing plant do its thing. I understand this stuff. So when I started doing the research, I was like, I was kind of freaking out. There's this, I'll say people can Google this later. It's called Taylorism. Back in the day, time management didn't exist. Sure. There was like dials on the sun and there was like, you know, watching the shadows move and all that kind of stuff historically. But when we move from agriculture to the industrial revolution, there became a need for time management because there were all these people coming to get these jobs and no one knew what they were doing. And so they started studying literally people moving a brick and they would say, Oh, this guy gets more done because he keeps the bricks closer to him. He moves his elbow this way. And eventually we get time management and they call it, Overall, they call it scientific management. And this is what we teach even today now in in business schools. But what they don't tell you is time management was never, you and I are personal development people. Like we're thought leader people. We under, we, I don't know how the word time management got into the self-help vernacular because it's the opposite. 
it, time management was designed for wage rate setting. Time management was designed to squeeze every drop of blood, sweat, and tear out of every human being for every second of every day, not just at work, but at home so they could get back to work. Yeah. And we use it like it's going to give us our time back. So the difference between time management and anti-time management is time management. The real question is management means control. So the real question is who controls your time? So we move from time management. They control my time. to anti-time management. I control my time. We move from, they tell me what to do to, I get to choose what I want to do. We move from, they took up space to, I get to create space and people go, well, I like, sometimes I like people telling me what to do. And I, that's fine. And that's fair. Let's just not trick ourselves into thinking what's what, when, what's not, <laughs> you yeah. know, let's be honest about what's happening here. Yeah. Uh, this is so great. And this is, it's embedded so deep in our Western culture that, that it creates stress. It creates anxiety. It creates depression. And it starts in the schools after being in schools for 25 years when I didn't give kids homework assignments that could be measured by some out exterior measurement tool, kids started to freak out. Hmm. Parents started to freak out. How will I know if I'm doing well? Keep asking that question. That's a valuable question. How will you know if you're doing well? I don't know. Usually you give me a grade or our teachers give me a grade. I'm like, okay, so there is no grade. I said, there are no grades. How will you know you're doing well? I don't know. It's like, this is more important for you than anything I might teach you. How am I doing well? How will I know? I go, the parents, you got to understand. I want you to understand this is a problem in our schooling system is if you constantly think your kid's going to get valued by teacher by getting good grades, and that's how they'll be successful in life. At some point, they're going to figure out it was all a trick and you've got to give them back their agency and decide what's worth my time. What's not, what makes me move forward and what I want. Well, I want to be successful in high school. Okay, great. What does that look like? What does it feel like? And I'm the English teacher. I wasn't teaching leadership or anything. <laughs> I was teaching how to yeah. write. Wow. So that's something where it start early because, you know, we have them on a bell, the bell rings, they all stand up. Wow. No. Yeah. That whole idea, how do you measure your life? Right. Like the Clayton Christensen question too. It's like that, but the other cool thing about that question that you're asking your students too, is everyone's could be different, yeah. you know? So the thing is, if you're going to measure for one thing, that's cool, you know, but overall, like if I measured my life on something I couldn't or didn't want to do, or if I looked at my life at all, from all, from the side point of all the tragedies, I would say that my, my life was a Shakespearean tragedy play thing. Yeah. <laughs> if I looked at it from my highlight reel, I'd be like, wow, best life ever. Right. So yeah. it, our lives are led by the questions we ask. That's right. It's exactly my point of helping stop giving them questions to be answered. Just give them questions to create more questions. They'll be successful with that. Don't give them the answers. Don't tell them there needs to be one. Give them the sense of curiosity. And I think that's the part we're trying to help. There's so much intuition left behind. Let's call it left on the table. When I think of young people, they're people. They're years younger than me. When I started teaching them, they weren't that much younger than me. They were 12 years younger than me, but they were people with brains and experiences in life and all sorts of things to disregard that and throw it out to teach them something, right? To believe that you can teach someone anything is a yeah. misnomer. You can't, you choose to learn when you choose just because you get good grade doesn't mean you learned anything. I love there, that. There's a way to help people understand that learning is the key. It's not teaching. 
that's not the goal of school. It shouldn't be. Teaching. That's right. And when they see beyond the goal, I talk also in the book too, like beyond the goal, beyond the strengths, what magically happens is all those things you wanted them to learn and do, they learn them better because they're freaking relevant all of a sudden, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> useful, meaningful. So right? you're not losing one or the other. It's just, it's actually, you create, you kind of create this ambiance from the start, you know, yeah. as opposed to one day in the future, you're going to need this when that's not true. Or yeah. maybe it is true, but they can't see that. But, you know, I started thinking this way and, you know, you know, most of this, but, you know, my, my son passed away. Yeah. My brother-in-law passed away. My wife had a stroke and lost her memory. My, my other son got hit by a car and should have, should have died. We had foster kids that uh, we thought we were going to adopt after two years of being with them. And they came and went and it was so hard on us. You know, there was a time when we thought in Hawaii that North Korea was dropping a ballistic bomb. We were all going to die. And I was out of town. I thought I lost, it was my whole family. This is a real thing. This yeah. is a real thing. And then I realized, you know, like what you were saying, what is it that actually matters? How can I prioritize my attention instead of managing my time? How can I reclaim my time? How can I revolutionize the things that I'm doing? And I remember thinking when I thought, when we thought Hawaii was going to blow up legitimately, we get a text saying that this is happening and it's not a test. And it's, we laugh at it now, but at the time I thought, I thought I had all the feelings, I had all the thoughts, but I also had the thought, at least we live without regret. And to me, it, that was important because what we had, we didn't necessarily seek this out, but because of the different circumstances we had, we it created almost like in psychology, I think they call it a forcing function. It created almost like a forcing function where, you know what, there's so many things that don't actually matter and we're prioritizing them or thinking we're going to do all these things and put our priorities last. Isn't it weird how we always say, this is my priority. Let me do it last. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Priority means prior and to proceed. We started doing that. And what that did is it forced us to, in a positive constraint, it forced us to make decisions differently. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you are going to be your kid's coach for sports, or you are going to be traveling, or you are going to do these things. That means I have to work, oh no, differently. My mind needs to be more creative. Oh, and by the way, we're already doing this in a different way. We're putting all of our work first traditionally and leaving the breadcrumbs for our family. Why don't we reverse it? Do all the family stuff first and leave the breadcrumbs for your work, but it doesn't have to be breadcrumbs. Why can't your personal priorities propel your professional ones? And why can't your professional priorities protect your personal ones? It's a totally different way of thinking, but it's entirely possible, especially in the 21st century when it's never been easier but we've never been more distracted. And yet when we get hyper-focused on our true values, we can crowd out all those distractions. Yeah. That's a totally incredible thought. If you're listening, you're like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> because yeah, the, what, Richie what talks, does what does that mean? So if you put things that are important first, people wonder how will I take care of my family. That's a better question already, right? Mm, yeah. That idea of exchanging time for money. It's okay. It's not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what if you didn't have to do that when you didn't want to? Let's say when you didn't want to, because I enjoy coaching people. It is time for money, but I get a reward and I'm helping them build something that's greater than that, even that time that we exchange. Usually if we're doing a book, obviously that's a huge exchange because we're creating something that didn't exist before, that some idea, concept, some fundamental shift in the world because they're putting, they're being creators willing to take the risk to put themselves out there. And that 
shift is really important because for some people, if they're trying to create a book as a widget, that's one thing. I don't say all books are all supposed to be making money as a product, as a $9, $12, whatever product. Books can make an incredible impact and make wealth if you don't think of it as that limiting, like this little thing, a widget. It's an idea, a concept. It could be a coaching program. Your book's beautifully designed. You can talk to me about it to be a book to help organizations. There's a there's a system, there's a formula, there's a way to describe this framework. So I think books have more to bring than just the product. And if people see it that way, they stop being limited to believe and treating books like a launch. That's like having a kid so you can have a birthday party. No, you have kids, you love them, you care about them, you want to talk about them for now and forever, or as long as they need you, right? They're not a launch. They are a thing you birth into the world. And so I think sometimes people miss that when they're trying to create something powerful. What was your thinking in putting your book together the way you did? First of all, I agree. You should allow your book to grow up and you should parent it. (laughs) You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Baby that thing, let it grow up and do your best. And even when you write another book, don't let the other one go away. You know, I I think that's just so important. But, you know, I'm a big believer in writing things that are timeless. Yeah. Everyone, look, someone's going to write a book on how to code. You're obviously going to write a book that's how to code. It's only going to be good for a year. And that's on purpose. And hey, that means you get to keep writing books every year on the updates. That's it. If you're writing fiction, you're writing fiction. But if you're writing nonfiction and you want to stand the test of time, I look for principles. Here's something that works. Here's how it worked for me. Here's how it worked for my clients. Here's how it worked for the research. Here's how it might work for you if you would apply it. And by using principles and writing them in a way that's timeless, trying to use stories that don't include freaking software, <laughs> <laughs> you can write a book that'll be good for a decade or 50 years or 100 years or longer. And if you think about it, technology, the technology of today is, br- is brand new You know, in relation to how long the world's been around and people have been around. But do you know what's actually stood the test of time? Books. Yeah. Art. Physical things that you can touch and feel that might even survive a tsunami. Yeah. This is what makes people. And what's weird about being an author, too, is like books come with their author comes with it's a part of the word authority. Whether you are one or not is, I guess, debatable. But the fact that you've written one is a clue that this person seems to have figured something out, knows something and can help me. So anyways, I look at books and when I write them, I'm not thinking of my next book, even though disclaimer, I'll probably write another one. I think 10 years from now, how is this book still helping people? And I can say that with, I can genuinely say that because resumes are dead and what to do about it was written in 2011, something like that. And then it was picked up by a publisher and put out in 2012 and the power of starting something stupid that was written nine, almost 10 years ago. I treat it like it's still brand new and I've honestly made millions of dollars just teaching people these principles and finding ways to serve them in creating businesses and products, services based on the book. I, I pick my book and I still think of it as new. I've read it multiple times. I've read the hard copy. I've listened to it twice. The artist started something stupid. I've read Anti Time Manager once. I'll probably read it again. 
But the thing about what you're saying is really important. I had John G. Miller on the show. He wrote QBQ, Question Behind the Question. I first read that book almost 20 years ago. He's just like you. I treat this book like it's brand new. Why? It's brand new to the person who never heard it before. He goes, I've been, I built an, you know, this huge company on this single 120 page book. I'm not writing other books. If I do, it's to support this book, but my focus is this. He goes, I just think this is the book. This is, I won't get tired of this. I still believe in these principles, principles, not techniques, people. These principles still hold up. It's about the difference between blaming and taking accountability. And that's what question behind the question is all about. So that's the thing I want you to hear is like, I've had people come to me and say, I didn't love the book I wrote about being the quick start, Kickstarter king or queen. You know, and everybody wants me to keep running Kickstarter campaigns for, I don't want to be that anymore. I'm going to, you wrote about how to stuff instead of who you are in the world, why you are mm-hmm. different. That can be Googled research. If you can Google it, YouTube it. And so you don't have a different perspective you would like to share, then it's probably not something you'll want to hang on to. These beliefs that you have in anti-time management, I've been re- reading about on your posts for years and implementing them in my own life. So when you were writing this book, how intentional was it that you were starting to share the content before the book was even drafted? Extremely intentional. You don't even understand. This is frustrating to people who want to be authors immediately. So I'm going to say as an aside, you can write a book in a week. I got it. You can do that and you can self-publish it and you can do it. But I pitched this book maybe a few years after I wrote my other book. And then life got crazy. And then I got, I finally got an, an actual agent. So I pitched this book with an agent, not pitch. I worked with the agent and then we started pitching for three years to write a proposal. (laughs) (laughs) And then I got a deal with Hachette, one of the top five publishers in the world. And then I wrote the book and writing it took me a year, two years. And now here it is. So this is a product again of a really long time, but to, to what you're saying, that doesn't mean I'm not sharing the principles that I'm learning every day on social media. Yeah. And that, and why do I do that? One, I saw that it was good. So I shared it. Okay. Two, <laughs> what happens is organically, you make one decision so that all these other decisions don't have to be made. Meaning I share it and someone comments and they ask a question and I go, that's interesting. And it lets me dive into it. It lets me find out what parts are quotable, what they like. So a post turns into an article, turns into a video, turns into a podcast, turns into us talking about it here, turns into clients, turns into me writing about it into in a book, and it goes on and on. So in essence, this book, while the principles seem new to everyone, principles should have worked way back when and work you know, now, and they should work in the future. So I'm kind of collecting these new ideas that work in a new world, even though they may have worked whenever but I've had years of testing them with clients and, you know, getting feedback on social media that I'm not just writing things where I go, you know, I think this might work. I'm writing it down. Like I know this works because these 10 people did it (laughs) and guess what? So did these hundred other people. Oh, and by the way, I went back in time and found research over the last 400 years. They've been doing it this way too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, so yeah. yeah. Backed up the thing you were already proposing and thinking like the thing is, if you're always eager to rush to something, thinking that you're going to miss out, you're going to miss the chance. You're going to try to rush to go dig for gold when you could sit back and go, you know what? I think I'll build self shovels. You know, there's a different way to think about what you're doing. So, for example, the TED talk I gave, I was really, it was really a failed proposal talk, if anyone knew the truth. 
what makes a good teacher great was a proposal I had written for a book and was trying to pitch. And my proposal said, you just, this isn't working. It's just not that interesting. And that kind of hurt, but it was true. It just it was a lot of my reason why I was so frustrated with education and not enough interesting new stuff. And so the TED talk was me trying to work out this idea. Let's see if I can get it. Let me get the gist of it. Cause I tell people sometimes words get in the way of a really good idea for a book, meaning you think more words will make it better, but good books are simple ideas that people can carry away with two fingers, not have to load up their truck to take it with them. They go, you know what? This is a simple principle. And it could be one of many principles, but so many times we think that the words are the things that are going to nurture it. No, it's the timeless truth that sits there that you notice something that everyone else, it was obvious, but somehow they all missed it. That's what makes a book go, wow. I just, huh. That That's the thing so you're true. looking for. It's so true. It's so true. And I love to always think like I'm known for being counterintuitive and I do that. I guess my mind just thinks that way, but I usually ask myself, is the inverse true? You know, when I hear something, but I also, I call it like the other side of the coin theory. I think like I'm known for being on a lot of podcasts as I started, you know, I invented this term podcast guesting and all this stuff. And it was really because I was scared of the technology of starting a podcast. So I thought, why don't I just be a guest? And here's why that would actually be better. Cause I can be on 10 that have a hundred thousand person reach and hey, you reach a million people, you know, theoretically, whatever. And people started writing about this Forbes and others and things like that. What I'm trying to say is that there wasn't some master plan. Like all these things are going to happen. It was, here's a thought. Why don't I share it? Why don't I do it? Why don't I see if it works for other people and see what, what picks up? So when I'm sharing, like you asked, I've been sharing a lot of this stuff for 10 years, you know? And so someone like you might read the book and go, I've heard Richie talk about this for a long time. And yeah, that's why. And also I don't see my audience as the place where I'm, this is, I again, counterintuitive. I don't see my audience as the place I'm making money. I see them as people that I love and trust and I want to help and support. And yes, I will make money from them if they want to work with me, but they will be able to, if they want to help expand my reach to people I don't know outside of my circle. So I'm not looking to squeeze things out of like people that I know, love and trust. I'm thinking give, and is there a way not you scratch my back, I scratch yours just organically. Will it spread? That's what I'm, that's what I'm doing, you know, and that's why it's all love, give, love. Because even if it doesn't spread, even if it doesn't come back to me in some way, I'm still acting for my values and I'm yeah. okay with that. Yeah, that's beautiful. And the way you described it is I tell people, I, I gave a talk at Podcast Movement years ago and it was about marketing and I'm not known for marketing. That's not, I'm a podcaster, but people would come for that talk, you know, about how to get more downloads and clicks. But the idea was stop chasing downloads and clicks and, and followers. Because if you want to be an influencer, it comes from service. If you want to be an influencer, serve. That's it. The number of people you serve will grow as what you've served, gave them, was impactful, useful. Don't go try to get build your followership just so what? So that you can do what with it? Make money? You're going to, that's, if that's your goal, I can't tell you not to. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if you want to be influential, you need to serve. And so in that model, the reason I have this podcast is so I can spend time talking about with my amazing friends like you, people I care about, I learn from, I read their books, I get to talk to the author of those amazing books. Come on, it's for me. If people get value, you're listening, you're getting value. That's beautiful. I don't put ads on here intentionally. I want to serve. It's one of my acts of service because I care about people's messages. And so one of the things you describe in the book I want to talk to you about is you talk about creating a moat, two different kinds of moat in your book, a protection from your 
the thing you're creating. If you're using anti-time management, you still have to protect it. You still have to create a sort of wall around it because I think there's a lot of opportunity for things to creep in. Tell us about that idea, that concept. Okay. So let's just do the compare and contrast thing. So in, in traditional goal setting, if you Google goal setting, you're going to find a picture of some dude in a tie climbing a mountain with a flag in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> it would be funny to look on Amazon how many books that had that exact image. <laughs> and it's cool, man. You know, you could have got like on a helicopter to get to the top of the mountain. You, like, you could have rode a donkey. You had to climb in your suit. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if, if, it's just weird because we, again, picture it this way. Traditional goal setting and managing goal setting means take these steps and in the end you will get it but to people who thought they would have the ability to retire at 65 and weren't and they were told for 40 years that this would be the case that's weird yeah you know when my brother-in-law passes away at 21 doesn't get a chance to live that's the end so you have to think in, in my head and with the anti-time management differently, first build the castle, then the moat. When you go to Europe and I've seen them in Japan and other places, you'll see a castle with a moat around it because the moat protects the castle. Today, however, we have chosen to start with the moat and the moat represents work and we never get out of the moat into the dream. Mm. When in reality, with the same breath at the same time, with the same effort, you could have began with the castle and built a moat around it to protect it. And I say, so the moat, right? the castle would represent the dream, build the castle, then the moat would represent work, but I do it in two ways, strategic moat and economic moat. A strategic moat would be the way you work. Because how many millionaires, and I even know billionaires, who have no time? It's not about money, my friend. Yeah. At some point it is, but at some point it's not. It's the way you work that gives you your autonomy. Right. And then you have this economic mode that protects you financially. This is, it, it's hard to describe because it's so different but let me try and make it very simple. Someone comes out of college and says, I need to make money. So they get a job in the city. They hate the city. They spend their entire life there. And then they pass on. <laughs> this is like really grim. <laughs> they put money first, thinking that it would protect and create this situation for their family. I'm not saying this is wrong. This is not a right or wrong. I'm just saying there's another way. If you put your values first, your priorities actually first, if you create projects around the thing you actually want to do, you will choose jobs or create jobs and opportunities that support the thing. So that same person that moved to the city, if that person like me loves living by the ocean, that person would go to the ocean and they would create or find a job there. I'm making, I'm oversimplifying and see people like, no, you can't do this. This isn't the way it works. You go, actually, every choice your entire life 
has created the situation you're in right now. No, but terrible things have happened. I know they've happened to me too. I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm saying even when bad things and crazy things happen, anti-time management allows you like the ability to create space to make decisions that are in alignment with your goal, alignment within the book, we call it final cause from the start, not the end. And so in in that way, you create moats that protect your time, the way you work so that you could have the dream from the start. So even when you get fired, even when your business fails, even when you, maybe you even quit, maybe the whole thing doesn't work out, burns to the ground. You're still successful because you're measuring yourself from your values and you were living them every step of the way. That's right. And that's really, like you said, that's a hard thing to do. ConvertKit did a video about Steve and I, our documentary, oh, 10 minutes long about leaving our traditional, very successful careers. You know, as I was ed- edging towards 50, people were like, how did you do? I was like, the how wasn't the hard part. It's that we did. And then people were like wondering, how do you kind of leave your career and live out of your suitcase and build a business as well? Because we did a vision of what we wanted separately. What do you want your ideal day to look like, Steve? He did it. I did it. And it looked like sleeping as long as we want. Look like so when the sun rose and we woke us up, that's when we got up. It, it looked like going for walks on a cobblestone road. It looks like having coffee with our friends in the middle of the day and not worrying. It looked like travel. It looked like freedom that we could work some and people would think we're on vacation, but that's what work looks like. It doesn't feel different. And so as we started to come to fruition, we're like, oh, this is this is exactly what we had said we wanted. And people were still surprised. Like, but this is what we started from. We didn't start with the money and everything so we could travel. So we could buy a place in Europe. We started with the idea and stuck to it, like you said. And I think a lot of those principles you taught early on, I just, let's cling to these things. Let's cling to this idea. This is how we'll get there. Not wait till we make enough money to retire. I want to live my retired life now, full of fun, freedom with people I love, clients I love, work I enjoy. And I never have to worry about retiring from this thing. That's true. It's true. So people talk about what you explain, work-life flexibility. I don't like the word balance because balance, it's a great word, but the word balance in in describing your work and your life, first of all, it's a myth. There's no balance. Things are wild. It's changing all the time, but also you don't want balance. In physics, balance means motionless. It it literally means it doesn't move. It means you're stuck. Balance means you're stuck. If your life is balanced, you're not doing anything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's what it means. So that's why flexibility is a better word. But now that flexibility has become a corporate perk. Now corporations are reaching their tentacles out way out there and saying, and now I'm watching how long you're on your computer on Zoom. And you're like, that's not freedom. That's not flexibility. That's bizarre. You know, so they're going to keep doing that. But to me, flexibility is three things. It's autonomy, your ability to choose. And we all have different degrees of being able to do it in different situations, but autonomy, availability, and ability. So if you can choose and you have the ability, but you're not available, that's not flexibility. If you're available and you can choose, but you're not able, that's not flexibility. There's different degrees. So the things I'm not able to do, maybe I can find someone who can do that part for me. This is how we start becoming an architect of our businesses and of our dreams. You know, the goal is to do everything yourself. Architects don't build buildings. They draw them. General contractors don't build buildings. They sub everything out. You know, the goal really here is how do I live that outcome from the start? How do I create that outcome right now? How do I move towards this thing I want to be? Despite the fact that tragedies are happening around me, life is hard. How am I setting things in motion? Yeah. Yeah. We, I could go super deep into the framework and how this all works. 
Yeah. Uh, but the concepts are, I hope they're resonating. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're hearing this people who are sitting there, even in your own job, there's ways to use and apply these principles. You give some great examples. And I think that people, you're going to have to go through your skeptical beliefs first about what you were told, mm. taught, trained, what you're living. This whole idea, I don't even know at the beginning of the show as Richie and I were challenging this whole idea of productivity. You're probably like, wait, but why isn't productivity good? I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's interesting that you're ch chasing something when you don't know why you're being more productive. What I want to help people understand is the same thing goes true for writing. Most people think writing a book is hard. It's one word after the other. The hard part isn't the writing. The hard part is having something worthy to say over the course of time that you don't want to give up on, you care about enough, and that other people care about actually equally to you. And that's really hard to do because you have to nurture something out of other people when you're writing. And I think that's what you do really well, Richie. You, you nurture the truth out of us. Like you challenge our thinking so that we can see it and then make our own choice. And I think that's great. I want to talk about a few minutes here. We could, I could do a series of shows just about your book, to be <laughs> honest. But one of the things I want to talk about in your book is that you, I, you know, I had the privilege of getting an early copy and you sent a beautiful letter in there that basically told us what you wanted, and which is great. You said, I'd love for you to buy some copies on these places, which is really important. People need to know why. And you did a good job of that. You talk about leaving reviews, which is really hard. It's the hardest thing about books, to be honest, is things like getting reviews because people have good intentions, but they have a really short attention span. And then you tell us to share it, post it, let people know it's happening. And I haven't read that for a while, but I can remember those simple points. And I think that's really important if you're writing a book, if you want people to help you, tell them what you want them to do. If you just say, buy my book, guess what? They'll buy a book. I had a Rob Angel on here. He's the creator of Pictionary. And wow. we were here, we're chatting about his, he was a 26 year old broke college kid that had an idea of a game he played in college that what if could we make a board game? You know, this is the eighties before internet. And it's pretty, pretty incredible story called Game Changer. But the thing that was cool afterwards we talked is I really want help selling more books. I said, I'll give you one strategy to help you double your sales right now. He's like, okay, yeah. I said, stop telling people to buy a book. He's like, that doesn't seem like it's going to be very helpful. I go, the moment you start telling people to buy two or three, they will. They're just doing what you told them to do. So just start telling people, hey, would you buy a book for yourself and a friend and share it? They will do it. Just realize if they care, they'll do it. So double your sales by just asking that simple question. Would you buy two and share with a friend? I think that's the thing that people have to understand sometimes is that when you're marketing a book, you got to think through things and you did a beautiful job here calling us to action. What has been the most exciting thing and the least exciting thing about marketing a book for you? <laughs> I, that's a good question. I'm not like, marketing is not easy, you know, like for me, even, it's not even easy for the people that say it's easy for them, you know, because every situation is different. You have to, yeah. once you understand the market, once you understand what they want, once you have them asking you for stuff, yeah, maybe at that point it's easy, which is the craft. You know what I mean? Of yeah. being a good marketer is to make sales, as Peter Drucker said, superfluous. If I said that word correctly, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> and so I'm usually disappointed, sadly, with a lot of marketing people who sell their marketing because they never tie it to sales and they never, they, and the salespeople are always blaming the marketers. And it's like this big rift. And it's, you know, they can be one and the same, but they're, they're, there's this flow to it, you know? And yeah. I don't, even though that letter, you liked it and you remembered it and it's beautiful. That wasn't easy for me. You know, I was, I had to tell myself, be specific with people so they can be specific with you. Yeah. And how do I write it in a way that doesn't sound sleazy or weird? And honestly, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Something I learned from Seth Godin, you know, you know him too, is, you know, sometimes it does hurt to ask and that's a scary thought. And so it's not about just asking like you're some spam bot. Yeah. It's about nurturing and creating relationships. Right. You know, and you earn the right to ask. And so that, that's how I approach it. But what I've been surprised in a good way is when people read it and they tell me, they're telling me like before it's even out, they're telling me what they're doing now because of it. And I go, wow. And what also makes me happy is when people go, I've now I'm hearing this from industry leaders who are, you know, a generation or two older than me. And they're saying, I've never heard this before. I've never seen this approach in this way. And they're saying wild things like in all my time, I haven't seen anything that this, this different on the subject in a long time. The reason that makes me happy is one, I'm surprised people are saying that, but also two, I want to contribute something new to the world in a world where nothing's ever new. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, that's I, what I, being a creator feels like uh, what it's about. You're creating something taking a little bit of this and little there and bring it together or picking up an idea that got covered up. You know, one of the late, the late TEDx speaker and professor, Sir Ken Robinson talked about in one of his talks about how they thought that Death Valley was dead, right? That's the name. He goes, it was just dormant. And one year, an incredible amount of rain fell on Death Valley. And to their surprise, an incredible valley of flowers and greenery expl- exploded all over Death Valley. And it was just weird. And sometimes we forget that their ideas just laying in the dust because you assumed that they were dead or not useful or long gone. But you've been thinking about it. You've been kicking it around. You've been wondering. That's why beautiful. not test it? Why not wonder? And I think that's really beautiful. That's really beautiful. You remind me of something. It's kind of in line with the nature thing. <laughs> I love nature, by the way. I'm <laughs> constantly outside. You know that. Just yeah. Constantly outside. So this is the hard part mar- about marketing that has made me sad. And I'm not like sad, crying, yeah. but just, oh, this is frustrating. It's just how hard it is, man. Yeah. Even me, after doing this for so many years, it is so hard to get anyone to do anything in any way, even when you have relationships. Yeah. And when it does work out, it is like the greatest feeling in the world. But there is nothing easy about it. It is work. Yeah. <laughs> it is work. Yeah. But I've been doing the work while my goal, and when I even wrote the book, was not to let my 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 personal time and my family time suffer because of it, because I've done yeah. that before and we, most of us do. And it was an experiment. Like, you know, if I do just set this down, the work and come back to it later after I, you know, I put my priorities first, do my family stuff, my travel stuff, my personal stuff, what will happen? didn't skip a beat, man. A responsible yeah. person. No one's more productive than a procrastinator with an impending deadline. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, it's so true. Oh, I love that. That's one of the quotes I remember you posting. I'm like, yep, yeah, that's yeah. so true. But uh, the nature thing, Whitney Johnson, who's an amazing friend and author and coach, executive coach, she told me the story of the lily pads. And she says, if you look at like in a, I don't know, a pond, you might only have one lily pad, but then it, overnight it turns into two. And then overnight it turns into four. And then overnight it turns into eight. And eventually half the lake is full. And overnight, the entire lake is full. That's what marketing is, man. Yeah. One at a time. And so suddenly it starts folding over. It starts doubling. And all of a sudden you look around and you go, whoa. <laughs> whoa. That's the effect, the whoa effect, because people have, will reach out to me. I'll post occasionally about the TEDx just because I sometimes I forget and I need to remind people about the message that I still care about. 
people say, wow, I people, I'll post something like just inciting, just for fun. You want to know how I got 3 million views of my TEDx? People are like, yeah, what's your strategy? I'm like, follow the thing, which is have an idea worth spreading. That's how it happens. That's really it. I didn't market it. I didn't have some trick to get people to view it. I didn't do any ads. It's an idea worth spreading. It's a simple premise. That's the whole thing that's about. And people are the ones talking about it, not me. And that's what makes me happy. I've had professors do TED Talks about my TED Talk. I've had people run whole conferences from a section of my TED Talk. It has nothing to do with me. That's what marketing is, I think, as you're saying. It's it like is. It, it, yes, it there is. had to have one view at first, right? Then I had two, no. and then people talked about it. And then there was a double. Then some class, a professor shared it. Then, that, you know, it, that, I'm still blown away because I didn't do anything. Like, it that's, wasn't me that did it. Beautiful. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Everyone wants to engineer success because in, in a lot of ways you, you can, and especially for like short-term type stuff. And, you know, we hear this thing about failing forward and failing fast and being okay with failure. I don't like failure, man. Who wants to fail? Yeah, sure. I'm going to get better because of it. I'm going to see it as a learning experience. But what I see most though, is people are afraid of growing slow. They're afraid of growing slow because slow doesn't get you that immediate Mom and dad thinks I'm successful. Spouse thinks I'm successful. Friends think I'm successful. People I hate on the internet that I want to think I'm cool think I'm successful. No. Yeah. That's a scary thing, man. Yeah. (laughs) But you have to start. You got to do it anyways. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you're, if you know Dory Clark, who wrote um, The Long Game. I love her book because she's, I want to have a broad, I want to write and produce a Broadway play. She goes, but I know nothing about writing or Broadway. She goes, but that's a 10-year goal. Like it's so interesting. People are so interested to be doing something right now that they lose track of the now, like you describe in your book. What's the now look like for you that you're willing to defer your life? Versus that I have a goal for I really want to write a book about that TED talk, but I wasn't rushing because I would capitalize on the talk. I was like, I'm trying to learn from people if the simple premise can work everywhere, not just for me in a elite private school or inner city. Can it work in Lithuania? Can it work in Colombia? Can it work in a private school? Can it work in a school that's failing? Can a teacher use this technique to have an incredible impact on their students? And the answers have been yes over and over. That's the goal. Now, so it took me a while to figure out how do I teach this so simple thing that is counterintuitive to what everyone's taught in school? Because that was the problem. I did everything told, they told me in school about this is how you teach. Once I unwound it and didn't do it, I started having incredible success, but I had to let go of my other beliefs. And one of them was that the teacher is in control. I was like, ooh, that's the initial problem is that it's a control game. But what if they weren't? What would it look like? And that's when I started to use this collecting 26,000 responses to the question, what makes a good teacher great? I knew I kept it. I did it for 24 years before I even knew what it meant. Wow. But I wasn't trying to build anything. I was just curious. Wow. And that's the thing. People are rushing to try to get, I don't know, a certain number of commas club, which is fine. I'm not saying it's negative. I'm just saying that. Patience is actually really important in this game, I find. If it's going to align with my priorities and my values, as opposed to my outward success. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Richie, this has been great. We're already a little bit over time. Tell people, of course, go get anti-time management. Yeah. Don't don't buy my book. Buy two or three for you and your friends. (laughs) There you go. Please go buy two for your your entire company, please. Buy 100. would Would you like them to go to learn more about you? I'll just go to richynorton.com and the book stuff's there, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I really am doing deals. People buy in, in, in bulk, you know, there's discounts and things like that. But at the end of the day, like if you were to read the book or even just listen to this podcast again, 
I would hope that you would pick at least one thing that you've been putting off for a long time. What's that thing that's been pressing on your mind that just won't go away and prioritize that yeah. either do it or make it happen. Because the sad thing, honestly, you'll, you'll see this when you read the book is a lot of times a full calendar is an empty life. Yeah. And a lot of times an empty calendar means everything is organized in a way that it's done and doing it that way is really a matter of choice. It's not a matter of more or less time, but it will create an abundance of choices and time for you when you finally can open up a space in your world where it's airy and free and you can do the things you want and the things are still being handled highly with high trust, with tons of productivity in the right way. And I don't know. For me, I just want to have fun, man. I want to have fun. I want to make meaning. I want to influence the world for good. I want to take care of my family. And uh, I don't want money to get in the way of that. I want money to only enhance the things I'm doing, even if I don't have it. Yeah. Beautifully said. Richie, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. I love the book. Please go out and buy several copies, share them with your friends and family, because it really has made a big impact reading it as well as living it. So thank you so much, Richie. Thank you. That was so fun. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Authors Who Lead. I'm Asul Taronis. We appreciate you. Please subscribe so you can get the notification that we have new episodes every week and go to authorswholead.com to learn about our show notes and all of our backlists of amazing authors we've interviewed since the beginning of this podcast. Thank you and have an amazing day.